Welcome to episode 79 of G.I. Joburg, the Nets-only podcast about G.I. Joe coming at you from Cape Town, South Africa, Johannesburg, South Africa, and Long Beach, California. On the agenda tonight, we're dropping out of hyperspace deep inside Imperial territory to retrieve the Death Star plans. (laughs) It is a special mission indeed, but I'm joined by the usual suspects. Like an unsheathed sword in the dark, Paul. <laughs> Robin's like a like an unpeeled banana. <laughs> <laughs> right <Sorry>. and ready. <laughs> uh, I I don't have a fancy name. Special missions on the scene. You know I wouldn't miss it. And it's a special mission indeed. This being our first podcast of 2017, I thought it only fitting to deal with the biggest box office smash of the year that was, and that is Rogue One. I assume it was. I don't know. It's pretty close to being. It made lots of money. I mean, I think the biggest box office thing of last year was um, Captain America Civil War, but I mean... No, not Deadpool. Captain America Civil War. (laughs) But I'm pretty sure Rogue One will keep climbing until it gets to make the most money. It's a Star Wars film, after all. It's friggin' Star Wars! It is indeed. And it's just been Christmas, gents. Uh, (laughs) I hope uh, there was some good cheer and some festive times had by all. I've got one or two new things to uh, discuss before we start talking Star Wars. But does anyone else want to crack this one open? Pull that Christmas cracker or peel back that Christmas stocking? Or Christmas banana? (laughs) (laughs) Get me to it. You know what? Let's start with Rob. Sorry, Rob. <laughs> have, have you got any Christmas thingies to to talk about? And if you don't, that's also cool. Yeah, I got I got no gifts. <laughs> Kidding. <laughs> well, I mean, we wanted to swing this away from from Star Wars, but um, um, I have to swing it back towards Star Wars before we get back to to Star Wars. Um, <laughs> I received a <laughs> a a, a uh, first order Tie Fighter from from a very mm. good friend of mine for Christmas. And it's pretty awesome. It's just a, there's something cool about a black Tie Fighter, which just makes it look incredible. I mean, like they they, they know what they're doing in the first order, you know, when they make something look menacing, and they've got little like red splotches of paint in the front. It's, it's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I also got <laughs> sorry, I also got the uh, the box set of Ghostbusters as well on DVD. Oh, that's pretty cool. Hey, wow, who was smart enough to moves. get you that? No, there's my mom. My mom and my sister. Oh, dude, they, that is so cool. That is so, yeah, so I cool. The first it makes movie. me feel good. <laughs> yeah, the, the, uh, we watched the first movie again, um, and it's, it's as good as I remember it being. I still need to get oh, around no, but... to the second and the, the reboot, but uh, I'll get there. I don't think I've watched anything more than the first Ghostbusters. There was a stage mm. when I was watching it maybe once or twice every day. And I mean, sometimes actually watching it uh, and not just having it on in the background. I love the first Ghostbusters. It it, it was a, a film that when I was a kid, I was like, ooh, career choice. Cheer, 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 cheer. Oh, man, I dug it. Yes, I 
My poor parents have baked the shit out of them. Is that even a close enough approximation of Ecto-1? Forgive me, everyone. Wow. My voice is a little bit hoarse. Wow. <laughs> okay, listeners, you decide who got a bit closer, Paul or myself. <laughs> yeah, so that, that about wraps up for, uh, for my, my Christmas cheer. What did you get, Paul? What, what's what's uh, floating your uh, Christmas boat? <laughs> this year was actually very cool because my folks and I decided... Oh, as a family, we decided not to do Christmas in terms of, you know, giving each other gifts or anything like that, but rather to try and find ways to sort of enjoy the day, you know, because sometimes, you know, we have had a Christmas where there have been no gifts and it was a bit of a drag and it was kind of like, this is really stupid, you know, we actually a family, you know, we're cool, you know, we don't have any problems, so we should just have a chilled out Christmas. So anyway, we did that. So the first thing on my list that I got that is G.I. Joe related is, I mean, I've said this a lot, and I'm sorry if I'm boring you guys, but this is a really cool thing for me. Um, my dad and I made a G.I. Joe cabinet. So we made it out of uh, super wood and glass, and it's got sliding doors, and, and it's to house all of my vintage Joes, because I really love my vintage Joes, but I don't want them to stand exposed to the elements, because I'm a smoker, and there's a lot of dust up here in Joburg. And, you know, unlike my modern era figures, which can collectively stand posed in a glass cabinet... Um, I just feel that my vintage Joes need a bit more, something a bit more regal, you know, something that says, hey, this is my vintage G.I. Joe collection, because they're not cheap, they are antiques, and they look damn sexy on the wall, you know, I, I can't deny that. So, my dad and I made that cabinet, so that was my Christmas present for my dad and myself, and the whole thing was working together to make it, so that was fun. And then getting shouted at because I wasn't doing the painting right or something. That was fun, too. Because, um, you know, dads. <laughs> and then shortly before actually receiving that, I got a stalker. None other than 1990. Is it 92? Um, 91, Battle I think. Commander. Is it 91? Yeah, it could be 91. That's right. Ah, did I get him before I met David or after? Hmm. Anyway, talking Battle Commander stalker. And he is so cool. Uh, this was my first Talking Battle Commanders figure back in the day. You can't deny the badassery of this stalker. Uh, he's in the video game. He's shouting orders at you like he fucking runs the place. Uh, he's a very well-sculpted and painted toy. I know a lot of people have issues with his yellow and black and ready-to-attack look. And they might find issues with these sort of snow leopard kind of pants. But I dig this dude. The only issue I have is how much uh, ammunition he's packing on just one shin. Like, he's completely, man. like, not counterbalanced on the other leg. <laughs> he's got all those magazines, man. Yeah, man. He takes no fucking chances. This dude's loaded. Okay, he's he's going to kill you. He's going to kill you dead. And then he's going to kill you again. And, I mean, he even has a very non-military spec belt. It's actually kind of like, a, it looks like a leather belt. As opposed to, like, a standard military fare you know, sort of canvasy type of rap. And then, before the year closed out, another great, exciting G.I. Joe thing. I'm sticking purely to G.I. Joe, but I may deviate for something small just now. But just before the year closed, a friend of mine uh, let me know that he's got a few G.I. Joes that he wants to get rid of because it's like he, he's actually trying to build a toy museum and he wants to try and keep carded samples of stuff. And, and he's a big Dino Riders guy. And uh, he actually um, got rid of these three G.I. Joes. And I, there are three G.I. Joes I've been looking for in vintage form. 
for starters, I get to finish. Well, I get Xandar. Um, that's Serena's brother. And I know he's not everybody's favorite character, but I have a, a sort of a, a special attachment to Xandar. I just, I've always thought he was really cool. And I'm so glad to finally have this toy in my hands. Plus, I got his card and everything with it. The story goes with these figures that uh, they were in a warehouse and the warehouse flooded. So there was a lot of water damage on a lot of these toys. And these three cards were actually water damaged. So they had all of their accessories, but the figures themselves were unscathed. And they look like new. It's it's really incredible. And I have a Xandar. And the next one is a Televiper. This is my first ever Televiper. I haven't even got a, a modern era Televiper. And this is the original Televiper. This is not Python Patrol or anything fancy like that. This is the original 1985 Televiper. And he's purple and blue glory with that big head and what i can imagine is just one ugly motherfucker behind those goggles i love having a cobra communications officer it's about time uh this dude is uh was the inspiration for another little piece of something that i did my last project of last year and my first project of this year is i made a computer terminal like a, a saturday morning cartoon styled computer and communications terminal Pictures tell a thousand words, and listeners, believe me when I say this is some quality custom work. We will be posting pictures on the Facebook group. Check it oh, out. Totally. Paul totally. does a bang-up job of creating very, very cool scaled consoles. I mean, if you thought uh, 1 to 18 scale arcade cabinet boxes looked cool, you ain't seen nothing yet, because this is, like, legit. It looks like it steps right out of the animation cells of Sunbow and into three dimensions. Well done, Paul. Thanks, dude. Three dimensions. <laughs> yeah, but I, I got to also give Steve a little credit because um, uh, upon receiving this Televiper figure, I was like, shit, I need myself a trouble bubble. And then I mentioned it on our little group. And um, Steve was like, no, what he needs is a communications terminal. And I was like, oh, fuck. Well, you can give me a little bit of credits, but just a little. Uh, yeah, I mean, but I, I, I always appreciate... thought, like, yeah, he's cool looking badass riding a trouble bubble on the box arts, but Televipers, I don't know, they're not, they're not vehicle specialists. They're it not infantrymen. Problems. They're your communications guys. He's not the guy pulling the trigger. He's the guy filming the guy pulling the trigger. So, <laughs> yeah, he's Cobra's version of Scoop. <laughs> Ad nauseum. Hey, you've just sold me on that figure now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, last but not least is Beachhead. The original, uh, it's 85, Beachhead. Six. Uh, 86, sorry. My bad. <laughs> it's a recurring theme. Head. Paul, I think you do it on purpose. You do, right? A little. You, you miss it by like a year. Each time. I, you know, <laughs> it's just, I gotta keep you oh, on your toes. Talking man. Battle Commandos is from 92, right? 91. Uh, Beachhead, he's from uh, 85, right? A6. <laughs> like I said, it's a recurring theme. You can never get it bang on. You're always just like a year over or under. It's very cute. But, well, our listeners should actually know by now that I have the yojo.com page open <laughs> in front of me uh, when I talk about this stuff. So it's it's my little way of checking on Steve, right. and you you haven't let me down. I'm I'm not gonna lie. Some things to note about this beachhead, and this actually really impressed me uh, because I've only really been exposed to the modern era, and I think Steve has brought his beachhead over to my house once or twice, 
but I've never really paid it much attention because I've always I've always gone oh wow you know the modern era did a fairly decent you know like a bang up job in the in in his sort of representation but I got to say the vintage figure has got some some very cool little niche qualities to it one thing uh in particular that I actually like quite a lot and I was surprised by this is his gun in a lot of ways though his gun is quite simple in its detail it's thinner and it's actually got a much better proportion than the modern era version does. I'm not saying that the modern era version is um, incorrect or, or anything by any means. It's it's a very well-made accessory. It's just there's a very good quality to this gun, especially for this time. You know, when a lot of guns tend to be quite fat sometimes in the Joe line, this one is actually quite sleek. And, and I do really appreciate it. And I appreciate it. For that detail and you know he holds it fairly well it's not the best but it's great i mean it even has a trigger which is a plus and a minus because the trigger means that he kind of holds the gun like a bit of a gimp but at the same time it's a cool detail to have so it's a it's like kind of a win no win kind of situation otherwise for a very basic design beachhead's got some fantastic detail and Ladies and gentlemen, if you do not have a vintage beachhead in your collection yet then i think you need to do yourselves a favor and get one because this is a great toy to have in your collection. That head, though, oh, I love it. I mean, the the you must understand that the most exposure I get to the beachhead is from Action Figure Therapy, which is one of my favorite channels uh, on the YouTube's. Uh, it's a bunch of guys who voice over GI Joes. Uh, they don't do anything, but they come up with some of the funniest shit ever. Some of it's really retarded and dumb, meaning that I probably just don't get the humor. But some of it is just mind-blowingly funny, at least for me. The Beachhead character, I think he's called uh, Ranger. Uh, he's always at the forefront um, of a lot of these sort of discussions and, and stories. And uh, they've actually kind of got me excited about getting a Recondo for that reason. <laughs> jungle. Yeah, Jungle. <laughs> oh, fuck, man. You want to take a mustache ride? <laughs> <laughs> He's got that great, like, crawdaddy accent. That's brilliant. Mm. Oh, it's crazy. And it's a great... So, if AFT is listening, uh, we enjoy you guys, and we hope you enjoy us. And then the last thing, and it's not G.I. Joe related, I got a very cool Zatanna from the Batman, the animated series uh, collection from a friend. Um, and she is great. <laughs> uh, the... The female figures in the line are very articulated, but they handle that articulation well, and it's not unattractive. And I find that you can do some fairly sexy poses with the characters, especially for somebody like Zatanna, who, who if you've ever seen her on the show, specifically in the Batman the Animated Series, uh, you'll know, you'll probably understand why she's a figure that I really wanted. I find that she has such a, a real kind of sex appeal and a real kind of feminine charm you know it's not very forced she's a very cool character and i'm just very glad to have a plastic representation of her to stand alongside batgirl mr freeze and batman in front mm. of the batmobile mm. i do think i need to see the episode featuring zatanna now to get the last piece of the puzzle i mean i'm familiar with the figure and i'm familiar with her comic book appearance but not her animated series uh presentation also for those listeners who might be interested in checking out this uh gi joe or should i say saturday morning cartoon computer console 
I will be posting photos to Facebook uh, after this podcast is done or maybe even uh, tomorrow. I will make some kind of uh, pre-order information available for those of you who might want one as I'll be doing cast-offs of them. I'm going to limit the run. I just want to find out how many casts I can get off a mold. And then uh, I might even do something special like paint the first 15 or the first 20 myself. They will be signed and numbered. And they will be the first of many because I'm already working on my next project. Uh, I can't say prices or anything right now, folks, because I've got to get it all checked out. But the intention is to um, get some of these out to you if you're interested. But that's me. That's me. That's enough. Paul's new shit <laughs> for the for today's episode. Did anyone drop something down your chimney pipe, Cujo? Damn, dude, that's that's entendre laden. Um, but. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm thinking uh, of Firefly sneaking onto your rooftop and <laughs> throwing a, a, a stick of dynamite like he did uh, to uh, Snake Eyes' cabin in the Sierras. Mm, nice. No, I did get the new G.I. Joe Collectors Club magazine, so l- let me shout out them real quick. It's, it's always a pleasure to get that mag. There's obviously a lot of work that people put into it. They did put an article in there trying to give context to Stiletto. I haven't read that article yet, but I'll get back to you on that, gents. But they are dropping a new three-pack of female Cobra officers. Um, I think they just did that. They just came out with one. But this three-pack looks pretty cool. The, they all have different color ponytails. I want the redhead. Yeah, it's not it's not bad. The only the only criticism I have is just creative. They don't really give you a reason to to care about these specific ladies. I, I might suggest that you release them as the Viper's Triangle as Cobra Commander's private escort on his yacht, because you know he has to get away from Cobra Island. That's all I got. It's a good magazine. I'll also say, since we're in your ears, uh, Collector's Club... uh, Did you just say the Viper's Triangle? I did, but, dude... Okay, no, no, that's okay. Thank you. Well, dude, you could throw some some lamprey silver on him, you know? Maybe (laughs) give him some yellow Cobra insignias, kind of... (laughs) um, Maybe a, a, a... Team Zisu, what do you got? Um, do you think they would like their Cobra sigil underneath their chins, or do you think in the breast area? Um, Crotch. Uh, you know, you got to go breast. you got to go retro. Anyway, anyway, stop it, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Explicit content, Paul. I'm so sorry. No, why are you apologizing, dude? Uh, oh, I do have a couple things to throw in. When you're talking Ghostbusters, the thing is the movie I can watch every night. Um, yeah, I agree with that. I think that there's a Xandar emoji. I think I saw one the other day. I'm not even messing around. Motherfucker, um, that's cool. Does yeah, it have pink I, or orange hair? You know, I'll have to get back to you on that. Maybe I'll retweet it on Joeberg. That's all I got. Viper's Triangle. Uh, oh, uh, Collector's Club. Dude, activate me and Paul. Let's collaborate. Let's do a cover for him. We'll, we'll talk. Uh, good job, gents. Talk to you in the future. It's like they heard your prayer and complied with it at least halfway. You wanted a three-pack of those girls. You just wanted them in a powder blue to match Chrome Face Cobra Commander outfit. I might actually get that. (laughs) Paul, I don't think there's a toy produced that you wouldn't, at least on some level, consider getting. (laughs) I can't do another fucking blowtorch. Okay, oh, Hasbro, thanks. please. Enough blowtorch recolors. Seriously, guys, what the actual fuck? <laughs> but uh, Steve's kind of right. He is right. I, I can't resist them 
well sculpted plastics. It's about damn time that they got some some ladies up in the uh, Cobra Island. That's mm-hmm. all I'm saying. Baroness's bitches. There you go. I cool, got two cool pickups this festive season. The first being also from the Batman animated series uh, DC Collectibles line. I got the big one, the Batwing. It uh, was at a price that I kind of didn't shudder at too much because it had been seriously marked down from the price I'd been quoted the day before. It's like the guy knew how to reel me in. Anyway, so I dropped on it and promptly forgot about it for a couple of weeks, put it under the Christmas tree for me me to open uh, on Christmas Day evening after my brother's children had been put to sleep because, man, if they'd gotten their ho- their hands on that bad boy, well, someone would have lost an eye <laughs> because it is really, really sharply engineered. And I mean, literally sharp. All of the points are like needle thin and it's a very pointy craft, but it has oh. one serious flaw and it's mainly a failing with the action figures themselves. The single release Batman, the one with the the rubber cape, cannot fit in that cockpit for love or money. And that's a crying shame. I managed to get that figure into the Batmobile just fine, but he cannot sit low enough with that cape on to comfortably sit in the Batwing. Either that or you've got to push the cape over the co-pilot's seat and have it sort of like <laughs> extend rearwards from his neck. And that's useless because then you can't put anyone in the back seat. So I was pretty much ready to throw my Batman action figure, the only action figure I have from that line, against the wall. I basically got this figure because I'm a vehicles guy. I wanted the Batmobile and I wanted the Batwing. And you can't have those vehicles without a Batman to fly them or drive them. But um, I didn't have to throw that figure against the wall. Because <laughs> my four-year-old niece got hold of him and said, Look, he can do the splits. Crack. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Wonderful. fuck me. Shit. Oh, fuck well. me dead. That's life. Oh, you know, you can't, you can't turn your back for a second. You just got to keep everything, everything out of reach at all times. Jeez, right. Do not leave the room if you're messing with a toy and have it on a low shelf. <laughs> and that dovetails very nicely with the other pickup that I got around this time, which was an old eBay auction, which I'd won. It was a Cobra Condor, and I got it at a very, very good price. But then the seller refunded me my money, saying that his four-year-old's twins got into the room, and the Ziploc baggie containing the bombs, the missiles, the pilots, the file card, and the blueprints had gone missing. I didn't Mm. know if this was legit or not i mean if the seller didn't get the price that he wanted i mean it was well below the uh the buy it now price and i did use some sniping skills to get it at that price because uh, you know driving up eBay. an auction ahead of the closing date is foolishness <laughs> wait till the last second please surely all our listeners know about that trick so i I caught bullshit initially. I was like, mm, maybe he's just wanting to relist it at a later stage and get a better better price for it. But what do you do? You you can't very well go pointing the blame and saying, no, I don't believe you. 
for all I know. He could have been right. I believed him. You did. And I think, Paul, you were absolutely right. Because I approached him some weeks afterwards saying, hey, buddy, did you find the missiles yet? And he was like, yes, I did. If you wanted at the price that you um, had initially bid, you can have it. I was like, sweet. PayPal'd in the money and bam. A few weeks later, I have a very nice condition condor in hand, complete with Aero Viper. And... Sweet Jiminy Christmas. Get this. One or two of the missiles have chew marks on them, which are consistent Aww. with the dental, <laughs> the dental work of a four-year-old. So I think, I think the guy wasn't bullshitting me. <laughs> and, I mean, you have experience now with four-year-olds, you know, fiddling with boys. So I think yep. there's definitely a story through, a through so to my Christmas toy story. But um, <laughs> four-year-olds don't leave them with toys. <laughs> I think this is an important juncture for a little t- a little talk about the Cobra Condor. <laughs> this plane <laughs> is bogus. If it hadn't been requested uh, for YouTube review purposes by some of our our viewers, I would probably still not own one. I caved because while Paul has a Condor. He doesn't have an Aero Viper, and I, you, you can't have the one without the other. While the Aero Viper is not perhaps the most significant pilot, or even the most um, interesting-looking pilot the Cobra line ever ever yielded, it is a necessary component of the Condor, because he tells an interesting alternative story of Cobra pilot conditioning. This guy's not surgically altered in any way. He just pumps a lot of iron. <laughs> And wears a very pimpin' pimp moustache and goatee. He's the man. You're the man. You just I... said bogus, though. But this plane, it's just stupid. It's so stupid. It's not stupid. It's it so is awesome. stupid. It's... It is a sexy Cobra death machine. <laughs> that it might be, because it's sexy and it makes Cobras die. <laughs> It, well, has no, the one it has no engine, Paul. It has no engine. It does have engine. an engine. It has no engine. Okay. It has no intakes. I did some research now before this podcast because Steve had warned me that he wanted to have um, some words about the Condor. And being a fan of the Condor, I had to at least back it up with something factual. Um, but before I get there, before I let realism get in the way of a cool design, I feel that the Condor is very believable. It has a lot of great intakes. It's got a whole turbine engine system that goes within the fuselage. It's got intakes on the wings. It's got a, a, a very unique styled uh, rear thruster in the back. Re- Wait, where? Being a rear thrust. Where? Where's the it's, jet exhaust? It's those fins. It's those, I think it's six fins that sit underneath the round circular thing. And it also has four. Uh, and you should check out the blueprints because, you know, you have them. <laughs> but it's got these air discharge vents for proper in-flight balance. Okay, so you know it's got that to, to sort of help stabilize the craft. Because as you know, folks, it doesn't have a tail stabilizer. It's got no tail to speak of. The wings yes. are set so far back on the plane's fuselage. Now, let me tell you a little, little something about wings. You want to put them as close to the plane's center of gravity as possible. For no, maximum stability. True. It's all the way at the back. Like, this thing must handle like a dead pelican. And that's what I wanted to get at. Yes, It's inherently unstable. All the weight is four, four of the wings. Anyway, whatever. 
I'm, I'm debating the scientific and aerodynamic uh, merits of a fictional plane. You've just got to just use your imagination. Because, I mean, this, this thing is it's ridiculous. It's, it carries its ordnance in the wings. So the wings are so super damn thick, they have no aerodynamic properties themselves. That's the other thing I wanted to get into. Does it have see? ailerons? Oh, it does actually have, unfortunately, the toy doesn't have them, but they are listed on the blueprints as having some kind of, well, the word is aileron, but they use a different word, I'll tell you now. They have the anti-radar adjustment flaps with high-frequency jamming components. So I imagine that those little doors for the bombs are meant to, on the actual plane in real life, be flaps, you know, to help roll the plane. And our listeners, I, I urge you to check this out, and I'm sure a lot of you probably are very familiar with this aircraft anyway. It's called the Horton Ho. It is a stealth fighter that was developed by the Nazis in 44. Uh, well, it was recovered. One of them, they were recovered in 44, and they were tested, but they were never used in actual combat because the war ended. But uh, it is regarded as the first stealth fighter. It's a flying wing, which means the whole plane is actually a wing shape, which is very similar to the rear, the aft of the, the condor, the, the rear portion, okay? The boomerang. Um, the boomerang. <laughs> and that actually used two thrusters that were very close to the, you know, to the uh, fuselage, but it also didn't use insane sort of jet engines. It did have its own uh, type of a turbine intake system i can't get into the technicalities of it right now because frankly it's a lot of information so I go and check out the Wikipedia if page. you are stumped for a visual reference i think you might have seen them in raiders of the lost ark mm. is it not that aircraft it's very, yes it's it is possible you did it is yeah it is possibly it's very similar to that one it has a it's pusher not a pusher type engine which is yes. at the rear of the fuselage and you could, by extension, the um, First Avenger, Captain America First Avenger showdown on yes. the Red, Red Skull's massive flying wing. That is a kind of expanded design of this, this aircraft that you're speaking of, Paul. A much greatly enlarged version. Now, originally it was believed by many uh, because a lot of the data of this aircraft was actually destroyed or went missing or whatever by um, Nazi sympathizers or whatever. I don't know what the whole story is there. But anyway, for a long time, it was believed that this plane couldn't actually fly. But it's actually been proven that it has, that it has flown on test flights. And uh, Northrop Grumman actually made a, a working prototype of it that did indeed fly. And it's considered more of a glider than a jet fighter. And its role was a stealth fighter, so or was not a stealth fighter, but a stealth plane. So the uh, the whole purpose of this thing was was also to get into enemy territory, maybe take some you know some kickies, some snapshots, and then also maybe you know drop a bomb here and there. Did now the thing have is, a I ring feel... as a tail plane. No, well that is pure fantasy. Um, <laughs> Look, and Paul, no I think way... I'm going to cap this one off because uh, we, we'll save this for a YouTube review, and I'm sure I'm. I'm putting Cujo and, and Rob <laughs> to sleep. Um, it is absolutely bogus, and you're never going to convince me otherwise, but I cannot put it down. It is such a satisfying aircraft to hold. It's got a very right? good and very intuitive way of handling it. You know, you can grip it, grip it just forward of the, the boomerang section, 
and it feels great. Well, <laughs> I suppose it feels kind of phallic, so it's you know it's designed for men. I know to, I was going to say hold. about that. There you go. <laughs> um, but it's yeah, you you can't fight the the bomb dropping mechanism, which is very smooth. Both mechanisms, the the, the wing slides and the the drum roll. Uh, and what's so nice about it is you determine the speed at which you drop your ordnance. You can yeah. just unload in a very rapid succession, or you can drop like a single bomb, a single bomb, you know, strategic, very, very deliberate and very well-aimed bombing. It's it's a great, fun vehicle, and once you overlook the obvious uh, <laughs> impracticalities, I can just become a child again. It's wonderful. And I know that uh, fellow G.I. Joe reviewers do not like the the white appearance. Oh, it's one of my favorite parts. Well, there is precedent for white in Cobra vehicles. G.I. Joe got the tans and the olive drab and battleship gray and sky gray. Cobra got all the passionate stuff like blacks and reds and purples and deep blue. And also this skull white. It's got a very spectral quality. It's very spooky. It's it's like a, a skeleton's finger, if you think about it. It's it's even got bumps in the fuselage where the knuckles would be. So it's it's got that ghostly um, aesthetic, and it's very thin. It's very you know sinewy uh, because it is so lean. Maybe they should have called it Cobra Reaper. Oh, yeah. Well, Nice. You could very well call it the Reaper, but the Condor, I think the Condor is a great name for it because of those wings. You know, those wings are just spread out. Um, and it brings back the German German feel. Oh, with the Condor. So, the Condor. Yeah. If you if you spelt it with a K, wouldn't it be even cooler? Condor. Condor. Mm. One of these three things I won't be able to say in the review, but I can say it here on the podcast. So I'll start with the other two first. This vehicle has three fantastic features, or three great qualities to it. This is objectively speaking. It has an amazing play feature, as Stephen mentioned before. I'm not going to go into it. But the play feature works very well, and it feels great. The design aesthetic, which Stephen has also gone uh, at, uh, on at length about now, also is one of the reasons you've got to own this. A lot of those shapes, a lot of what he's getting into there, make it fantastic. But... The split apart feature is perhaps one of the coolest things if you have uh, if you have siblings and you know and and your parents could only you know you, you know with a, with a sibling I mean I don't have any but um, you know how your parents always had to buy two toys you know so that meant that you guys got you know maybe two maybe you got two GI Joes or two small vehicles instead of the warthog for example and maybe you know you know that caused some kind of you know long running resentment in you or whatever. The Condor was a vehicle, and there are a few vehicles that, that possess this trait. The Condor was a vehicle that if your folks got this for you and you had a brother or a sister that was also into G.I. Joe or the same age as you and your parents wanted you guys to play along, each of you could have a portion of the plane. Okay, yes, um, I know Short Straw gets the front part, but <laughs> at least both of you could fly around with this thing. And it kind of makes it a great buddy plane in that regard, you know, with the, the whole combination feature, even though I personally feel the front part is a kamikaze thing. But anyway. Have you checked the wheelbase on the, the landing gear? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so tight. 
landing this thing. I think it's just insane. honestly, I think it's just there so the pilot feels comfortable enough to get into it because I think the guy in the back actually is the one who decides that the plane splits in half or not. <laughs> you know what I mean? Don't push so, the red button. Oh, I'm pushing the red button. Don't push the red button. No. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I asked that one guy on our Facebook group. You know, he was talking about how much he liked the plane, and I. That's why I asked, who do you like to put in the in the rear section of the condor? Because in my opinion. Uh, Cobra VIPs go there because you know they're not going to die. They're not um, expendable, so to speak. But anyway, and the third thing, if you take the front part of the condo off and you put it on your nightstand and you have it facing upwards, you also have a very cool and very unique phallic symbol to enhance the sexual energy in your room. I mean, how is that not a reason to want to buy a figurine? That's not bad. That's not bad. Right? Right. Carry on. Mm. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I think I've said my piece about this vehicle. Um, it, 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 it is a very impressive vehicle for a bomber because it seems to have taken out not four, not eight, but 16 Phantom X-19s. <laughs> Fuck me. 16, know, hey? It, and it's a bomber. I mean, what, were they all parked <laughs> on the runway? <laughs> I don't even think G.I. Joe had a budget to even to make more than two Phantoms. Mm-hmm. But that's a discussion for another day. Now I'm caught up in it. Like, you can see a condor behind your bed stand, like, with a red light behind it. You know, if the red light's on, <laughs> don't come a-knocking. No, exactly. You, you hang the back piece on your door handle, right? So nobody bugs you. And then the front piece just sits on your nightstand, and it just it radiates sexual energy. It's just it's what a phallic symbol should do. My God, good stuff. Mm. Good stuff. But okay. uh, you know that the the phallic portion of the condor is also the one with the socket, so it is the female to the boomerang's male components. Hmm. Well, what does that say about your phallus? <laughs> let's not do that. Do you guys know what a rusty trombone is? <laughs> <laughs> you were talking no. Rogue One. Yeah, I think we should ditch the rusty trombone right now. <laughs> uh, listeners, if you are if you are so possessed, uh, you could look at our one up without too much difficulty. But Rogue One, gentlemen, uh, Death Troopers—they're all dressed in black. I think we should do a definitive sculpt along those lines, shall we? Let's do it. We're going to do a variation of our definitive sculpt section this time around. We're going to speak about black-clad figures, and which, for us four gentlemen, were, in fact, G.I. Joe or Cobra's finest black-clad figure, and there are a few. Listeners, if you want to pause at this point and jot down a few of your favorites, go right ahead. (laughs) But going round the horn, Rob, we haven't heard from you in a while. Who's your favorite black-clad G.I. Joe or Cobra? I struggled to think of of a good one. I mean, obviously, the one that comes to mind most obviously a snake eyes, but I was like, that's too easy. So Go then the I, yeah, exactly. I mean, he is completely black. So then I thought, I mean, what's better than a baroness? I mean, come on. Two baronesses. wearing leather. Exactly, two baronesses. <laughs> <laughs> oh, two baronesses. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, so Baroness, and my probably my favorite version um, would would have to be um, I think it's a modern era one where they finally got like a figure right. Um, mm-hmm. Two thousand nine. Twenty. Yeah, I was gonna say twenty four twelve. I'm not as good as Paul with those uh, those estimates. 
<laughs> estimates with the, you know, air quotes. <laughs> well, once we get into the 2000s, it's anybody's game. I mean, so many variations were released. And you probably are right. Maybe there was one released in 2012. I don't know. Maybe. But the I one mean... that came with Ravage, the exclusive one. They put it in a two-pack with Lady J. Yes, that's a really sexy one. Mm. That, 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 that's an awesome one. And she still has, if I remember correctly, she's still rocking. I oh, know her, her belt has the cobra on it. She doesn't have a triangle on it. Damn it. Mm, um, sorry, buddy. But still, um, she's very sexy, very awesome figure, and probably my favorite black-clad figure. It's a brilliant choice. I mean, she's sexy, and she's dangerous and villainous and... I suppose two-faced and she's got glasses on highway glasses so we've got something in common done at the cost of oh, uh, not coming out of left field as is my usual tactic i'm gonna also go with baroness and while i was probably gonna go with the original sculpt the 1984 version i'm gonna go with you rob and say that her modern era Boom. version is probably the sexiest action figure i own it's just perfection Perfection at a scale that I collect. And that is a, Gotta keep it away from the kids. Wonderful and treasured mm. thing. Well, thankfully, G.I. Joe is a little bit hardier than DC collectibles. I mean, honestly, who makes a toy like that? Ugh, those joints suck. It's in the name, DC collectible. Yeah, it's not but a toy. Still, <laughs> I mean, the, the guys at, at um, the one comic shop that I frequent, oh, that I've actually bought... All of my DC Direct figures from have actually urged me to open them in the store to make sure that none of the arms and stuff fall off because they've actually had people tell them that no, they were the arms fell off or whatever when they got home and opened it. Oh, I've returned stuff to the store that Rob works at, in fact, for that exact reason. Yeah, yeah if you test the articulation and, and obviously, I mean, it comes out the box essentially broken, yeah. I mean, normal DC collectible figures, I mean, they're, 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 they're fairly hardy, but I think it's just the way that these animated figures are constructed to look so mm. much like the really really thin knees yeah so that they look very accurate to the portrayals in the animated series that kind of makes it difficult for them to, to articulate them safely i think and while it is true to say that that 2009 cobra hierarchy i think it was set baroness is my sexiest action figure at that scale the sexiest o-ring figure is 1984 baroness by far at a time where Hasbro had a lot of trouble getting the female figure right at that scale and with that kind of articulation, that Baroness holds up today as a sexy figure. The head sculpt, right. the hair, the figure's proportions. She's got femininity without looking too hourglass, but she never looks yeah. boxy. She looks like she's wearing armor, but she still looks like she's wearing a a corset or bodice. Yeah, that's leather, brilliant. Leather that they bodice. actually managed a female form properly. At least mm. better than, than their previous attempts or I suppose subsequent attempts as well. Yep. Scarlet, yeah. unfortunately, that initial figure always left a lot to be desired, but they did not make the same mistakes <laughs> when they created Baroness two years later. Yeah. Cujo, Paul, your favorite black clad figure. I was working with different parameters when we set this out, but... I can dance. The Death Troopers definitely got your attention on screen. So I was thinking about black clad action figures. A lot of lines have them. I mean, 
the new Tron movie had some nice glowing uh, parts on black figures recently. But th- there are some other noteworthy ones. Uh, my favorite black Star Wars action figure is probably, I think it's like 2008 or something. They did a Legends Shadow Trooper. That was like the first nod to Expanded Universe. And yeah. you're not going to get sexier than the Star Wars uh, Stormtrooper helmet. I mean, the Death Trooper helmet is is trash compared to the Stormtrooper helmet. But uh, I think for Joe, I'm not going to get too specific on this one. The the Canadian G.I. Joe convention releases some sick-ass action figure sets. Um, they usually mm-hmm. do solid colors. Uh, I'm looking at one. I don't even have a name on this guy. But he's just a he's just a black figure, and and I'll I'll search for it in a bit. But with a blue cobra insignia, but they're all sharp. I think if there was a Joe character that I wanted to see in a solid black, and this has bothered me ever since uh, Stephen mentioned it months ago, and and damn you, Stephen. Um, <laughs> You're welcome. He yeah, uh, he mentioned uh, Wild Weasel looking plasticky because of the red. I'd mm. like to see Wild Weasel in a matte black, kind of like a Tie Fighter nod. You know, referencing uh, uh, Rob's earlier Tie Fighter venture, that would be a nice sculpt. That'd be a nice uh, addition or uh, you know figure. So I that's, buy that. That's, yeah, me too. Uh, that's me. Give me, give me a black wild weasel, damn it. <laughs> nice touch. Which leaves me the first figure that jumped to my mind, and it's actually the one. I cannot get past this figure and think of any other black clad Joe. In fact, uh, when you guys said Baroness, I was like, oh yeah, Baroness. Yeah, but uh, my favorite black clad G.I. Joe is specifically in the three three quarter inch line or the four inch line, uh, if you will, is an Iron Grenadier and the vintage one, specifically the vintage one. Wow, that thing that is a sexy, sexy toy. It's a it's a it's a stormtrooper, uh, essentially. I mean, they they scary looking. Uh, he has a sort of an elite quality to him uh, with these, you know, golden sword that um, goes on his side. And he has a very cool laser pistol. The Iron Grenadiers to me are still the ultimate black clad figures. A, a good runner up, I would suppose, is the Iron Grenadiers Destro or Destro himself. You know, he's also mostly clad in black, especially the Iron Grenadiers version, who's more black than the normal version. But Iron Grenadiers, or the Iron Grenadiers, Iron Grenadier is um, my favorite black clad figure. And then if I, I suppose if I had to reach out and think of another toy line that has a fully black clad figure that is pretty badass, I do come to Star Wars. And I got to say the TIE Fighter pilot. I love the TIE Fighter pilot's helmet. It looks so mean. I'm surprised that that guy gets to hide behind the canopy of a TIE Fighter. I think if those guys get out and they start shooting at you, you're scared shit, man, because that is one fucking mean-looking dude. So that would be my second favorite, so to speak. It's a great figure, great vintage oh, figure. Oh, I love it. Speaking of TIE Fighters, since Rob has some first-hand experience with this toy, how does the 1-18 to scale First Order TIE Fighter seat two figures? I wasn't particularly impressed when I looked at the box insert. It's sort of sit side by side and kind of hold hands in the middle <laughs> yeah they, they they struggle to not touch knees <laughs> oh, <Jesus. laughs> i mean the, the, it, it's downscaled slightly the black series six inch one is is properly scaled to the action figures and it is huge 
but to make the, the, the smaller TIE fighter practical price point and more playable, I presume, and to fit in with the earlier TIE fighters of the line, it had to be smaller. Therefore, putting two figures into that cockpit becomes a problem. Can it accommodate two figures? Well, I find it has, as long as the figure isn't you know too bulky. But mm. I mean, again, with this range of figures, I mean, it's, it's the newer Star Wars figures, the you know, three and three quarter inch figures, which lack a lot of articulation, which I think suppose helps them to get into the cockpit better because there's not so much like moving around to their limbs. It's like, you know, the legs just go straight down. And it's like right in there. <laughs> <laughs> get in there. Five point of articulation action figures. <laughs> which is weird because you'd think that they would be back to back. Because, I mean, that's how it's mm-hmm. shown in Force Awakens. I suppose they're just going to manage that. No, I didn't check sure that, not. by the way. And the back thing. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit weird. Yeah, it's weird. Oh, and does it have, like, rear-facing cockpit claws? Oh, I can't remember offhand. <laughs> right. Because I was just thinking, like... Yeah, I don't have it hand. You could look through the cockpit, the rear-facing glass, and, like, see a, a TIE fighter pilot's eye view. Ooh, now I have to check that when I get home. The back of the Special Forces TIE Fighter is like a, a viewfinder. You can, like, get inside the cockpit. Just like those micro-machines that had a, a sunroof. Oh, I love yes. those. Look in, so look you can look inside, inside and you can see what's going on in there. <laughs> I still um, got one of those. I probably, oh. Yeah, I think I have one or two as well. They're very cool little micro-machines. Um, but I think, yeah, when I get home, um, I, I'm going to have to check that out. I'm going to be very disappointed if, if it's not like that. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Speaking of TIE Fighters in Rogue One, uh, check some reviews today on the toys. Uh, the Nerdist had popped, uh, put out some reviews about the uh, Rogue One figures, or the Rogue, Rogue One vehicles uh, more specifically. And it's I think it's called an At Art, like At A-A-T, um, which is fairly A-T-E, well scaled. isn't it? Yeah, something like that. It's, it's, yeah. it's quite an interesting toy. It, it's, not, it's not the size of the at-at that Steve has, which I believe is the Battle of Endor, or the Hoth one, I think it is. I got the Endor re-release, Toys R Us exclusive, yeah. Which is like the size of a small dog. <laughs> no, it's the size of a rather large dog, actually. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, they were just talking about how um, Rogue One, and I suppose this will segue nicely into talking about Rogue One, but... Uh, they were just saying how because Rogue One doesn't necessarily have a child-friendly kind of vibe to it, that a lot of the vehicles have actually been dropped in price in stores. So that at at for example, has gone from $300 to $200, and it's still a hefty vehicle and has some great features. It's got like a drop pod with uh, dudes that, that can like be deployed from it. It's designed to walk, isn't it? I believe so, yes. Hmm. It hasn't got the best clearance, um, but I mean, they had Krennic... Uh, in the one shot to have Krennic there, and I mean he's not looking too cramped in the rear bay. Um, they also had the U-wing, and they have that um, Tie Fighter, and I I can't remember recall the name of that Tie Fighter. It's that Tie Striker. Very six Tie Striker, yes. And mm. I actually would like one of those because the toy is very well made and the scale is fairly decent for it because it's you a one seater. You might have missed out, my friend. They were available at Toy Kingdom, but when I phoned the store, they'd completely decimated oh fuck because i would totally get one of those yeah yeah it's 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 an interesting look 
but I think those wings are a little bit on the floppy side. They've got like a, a click up and drop down um, kind feature, of feature. Yeah. I don't know. And it, it bugs me that the rear section is presumably for a, a rear-facing co-pilot, but it's yeah. not functional. It can only accommodate right. one, one figure. Even though the, the back does look like it's sculpted to open, it, it doesn't yeah. open. It's non it's non-functional. That's the thing that puts me off the U-wing because... Like the U-wing is meant. I I understand, you know, toys and stuff today. I get it, but the U-wing is not meant to be a a, a one-man fighter. It's a it's a smaller spaceship as opposed to a fighter, and I I actually really like the design, and I would love to get that. And I I think I'd have to just you know bite the bullet and get myself a model kit version of it because if I can't get the right uh, size for it to be a great toy, then I'd like to get a very well done scale representation because. I quite like that craft, but yeah. Anyway, so they were just talking on the show uh, on the noticed about some of these, and um, yeah, it's quite fascinating actually to see that they'd actually done an at at that big. I, I honestly thought he was going to be quite gimped, and he wasn't. So that was cool. You know, at least it wasn't a Millennium Falcon with a boner again. So you know, that's always <laughs> good. <laughs> about the movie oh yes please i've got like rogue one blue balls i've been dying to talk about this movie well you could slow your row so let's pass the mic over who wants the opening salvo gentlemen give us a star rating out of five i'll go three out of five just because uh i was conflicted three and a half for this guy 
three and a half for you. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Oh, um, to hell with it. I'll give it four. I'll give it four. I'm holding back on one ooh. star for a very good reason. Uh, now will be unveiled in our discussion. There we go. I'll give it four as well. Why not? Deserves it. Oh my god. I'm going to be that guy, hey? Yeah, you're going to give it two. No. <laughs> I, I'd actually go as far as to give it four and a half out of five. It was... It, I found it hugely satisfying. I really enjoyed the shit out of the that movie. 90th percentile. And then another important question to ask at this point. Did you like it more than last year's Star Wars romp, The Force Awakens? I certainly did. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, yeah, I, I second I, that. I agree. Yeah, we, yeah, we, all, we, we I enjoyed it a lot that. more than Force Awakens. Hmm. I wouldn't say a lot more. I enjoyed it different reasons it giveth with one hand and with one hand it taketh away no millennium mm. falcon but no doddering old han solo so those cancel each other out i still got x-wings and that fucking rocked big time mm-hmm. i got a villain that i actually enjoyed watching uh oh, yes. awakens is yet to provide that unfortunately when I walked out of, uh, and, and this is why I can very comfortably say that I enjoyed it more than Force Awakens, and I'm not, or I'm not by any means saying that Force Awakens is bad. If you want to hear my opinion on Force Awakens, you can check out our Force Awakens Star Wars special um, that we did, and you will hear me gleam over that film with praise because I really enjoyed it. and I think it's a great film, but um, I do echo Stephen's sentiments in that. I don't like Kylo Ren being a tantrumy little you know, twit, although that does make it easier to dislike him, uh, which is cool. And I also felt that um, the new order doesn't have anybody with real teeth and uh, teeth yet. And we don't really know what Snoke is yet. So it's, it's difficult to say. Whereas in Rogue One, we got very cool bad guys and, and also familiar faces. We got to see characters that we, that we've known at least from, from the empire uh, doing a lot more and and actually living up to that in my opinion like so for example um grand moff Tarkin, who i don't think is grand moff yet but just moff Tarkin. governor Tarkin. governor Tarkin, uh, yeah the thing with him is is that in the original film you get this idea that he's you know he's a, he's a dick i mean you do get that feeling and he's he's perfect i mean he comes across as such a like a badass Nazi type kind of. Uh, we're using the term Nazi a lot tonight, but he has that like foreboding presence. He doesn't no, have to do too much. Paul, I disagree with you. I think he came off very stoic, very rational, and very reasonable in Episode Four. In Rogue One, but he's badass. He does he's come scary. off as a dick. I found him to be played a little bit more, not groveling, like brown noser. Like, he stole Krennic's idea out from under him. Oh, yeah. Totally, basically yeah. blackmailed him. I don't know. I, I, I found him far more noble in his original uh, appearance, that being in A New Hope. But that's the whole thing. No, no sorry. That's like to allay any confusion. Uh, I was referring to how, he, how I felt him in Episode 4, because, or in Star Wars, because, like, I always felt that there was something... You know, you get a feeling that he's menacing. He doesn't have to do too much. The fact that he simply blows up Alderaan, you know, like gives off the order to, to you know, destroy Alderaan just to get the rebel base out of Leia, although we're pretty sure he has other motives as well. That's just cold. And in Rogue One, I 
I like actually found myself at a weird point because I wasn't sure if I was rooting for Krennic or him in those situations. You know, I, I, at, at, there were times when I was actually like, you bastard, like Krennic, like I actually kind of felt bad for Krennic at a stage, you know, and, and, and that was that was cool. Like there was a dimension to to the villains uh, again, which I really appreciated. And well, what is often the case, and I found this to be very true in the form of episodes one, two, and three, and they should be noted in some regards. When we have revisited characters that we have met in the original trilogy, I felt that in episode one, two, and three, I was let down by every one of our revisits. I was let down by Yoda. I was let down by C-3PO. I was let down by R2-D2 in a lot of ways. You know, Palpatine, well, you know, Palpatine was, I suppose, he was kind of on point. But Obi-Wan, I also felt a little let down by. And it was great in Rogue One to see characters like Tarkin, for example, still being cool. Like, and, and, and in a lot of ways, kind of cooler, not because he, he he's a better character or whatever, just cooler because you actually see how he works. And it's got that whole corporate kind of vibe to it, that kind of nasty shit that you hear about in, in the big corporates. And he, he totally has that, that corruption. Uh, I, I thought that was great. Uh, and that that is something actually that rings true across the entire Rogue One for me. Whenever we revisited characters like Mon Mothma and uh, what's that Mon Calamari's name? I can never remember his name now. Well, it wasn't Admiral Akbar, unfortunately. Well, it wasn't Admiral it was Akbar, but disposable calamari, deep fried calamari. <laughs> radish, but I just man. radish. Radish. I didn't feel like let down by people in that film. Like it was weird. It was like I, I, I was so expecting to have the episode one effect, where or the episode two effect, should I say, of meeting you know familiar faces and going, oh fuck, really? <laughs> but I didn't have that. Rob. Yeah. Yeah, throw some wood on this fire. Yeah, I think overall that this film had a better laying of like moments, which I thought was cool. Probably my favorite thing about it is that it had Mads Mikkelsen in it as um, Galen Erso. I really love that actor. Like he's he's brilliant in everything he, I've ever seen him in, and I've seen him in a bunch of things, not just like Hannibal and and this and whatever else he's been in, but I mean some really like some of the Doctor you know Strange. films from the country where he comes from. Doctor Strange, mm. even yeah, but like like more like character-based pieces. He's a really good actor, and then that made me really happy to have a minute. Yeah, I, I mean overall, it's it's it's, it's a fun film. Mads Mikkelsen was cool. What did you guys think of the fan service, like in this compared to Force Awakens? Because I thought like oh. the, the degree of fan service they did in this felt less. It was less mass market, I found personally. Yeah, it it was kind of like almost throwaway. Obviously not like the scene well, with um, C-3PO and R2-D2, but I mean, it was more like it was part of the film. Let's not lose sight of the fact that this movie in its entirety is fan service. It is a filler story. Yeah. It's not creating any kind of further spin-off. It's not becoming its own thing. It is a self-contained little nugget of like, here you go, fans. Here's a Star Wars story. Gobble it up. And the way that it leads directly into A New Hope. I mean, basically, it, it's like it's like this is the prologue to A New Hope. Yeah. They've essentially just extended the runtime of A New Hope. You watch this, <laughs> yeah. and then you can yeah. straight away watch New Hope, which is what I heard one night um, at home. I, th- I think it was a couple of days after the film opened. One of my neighbors w- was watching A New Hope, and I was like, yep, you just watched Rogue One. <laughs> it's a superior f- film experience in that sense because it has a kind of a 
for a filler story, it has a surprisingly good uh, level of, of conclusiveness to it. Mm. You know, taken yeah, together with Star Wars, you've now got this unit that exists as like a very nice contained bubble of Star Wars-liness. You can take away every other film and just have Rogue One into A New Hope, and you've got this this wonderful... I mean, A New Hope is a self-contained movie in and of itself, but if you want to, like, spice it up with something new, add Rogue One into the mix, and you've got this, as you say, Rob, a much longer running time, self-contained Star Wars story. Yeah, and the cool thing about it, it's a prequel, but it still maintains that kind of... I mean, specifically Darth Vader. It maintains that menace of the character. Um, yes. it's, it's not trying to, like, make him more human. Like, like a oh, you know, here's, here's that little boy, Anakin, and how he turns into this fearsome villain. You get to see a, you know, a little bit of weakness in him, you know, when he's obviously in the back to tank, and that kind of adds some mystery to the character. Obviously, we can't go back and unwatch the original trilogy. I mean, the only reason why this film works is because people have watched the original trilogy. I feel it doesn't stand on its own necessarily. It, it kind of it, it fits so much into Star Wars that it can't be its own thing, in a good and a bad way. But it's good because it, it just maintains what they've set up in the original trilogy. Mm. Something I quite enjoyed about this film, or one of the the major takeaways for me, was that the rebellion, you know, the rebels themselves, throughout four, five, and six, you get this feeling, oh, the rebels, you know, the rebels are. The, the good guys and they the downtrodden and and whatever and you know they're on the side of good so they do all these good things and and if you've played um, Star Wars video games the which were regarded as canon at one point once again it's sort of it's it's kind of weird but even the video games are like almost like rebel propaganda because you also get this oh the rebels are so good and you know they're amazing and whatever yes the rebels are great because what they're doing is uh, in in my opinion, it is a good thing. But I like that they show that the extent at which they have to go to sometimes accomplish those tasks are actually quite dark. You know, they, there's a lot of um, cloak and dagger and, you know, skullduggery that goes on within the rebellion. You it's know, they're not Captain regarded Captain Andor the... silencing his yeah. own uh, informant. Exactly. Yeah. Not an entirely virtuous character. But then again, Han Solo shot first. Right? Right? Exactly. They decided to build Andor's arc into what what Han Solo, well, what Harrison Ford at least, always thought Han Solo's arc should be. That ultimately he sacrifices himself for the cause. Uh, anyway, it, it's a kind of a, a variation on a theme because Andor was always, he was always a true believer. Yeah, well, exactly. He's an yeah, extremist. Yeah, he was, but I think it also builds on what Paul is saying. It's not just Andor, it's rebellion itself. And that he was given orders to assassinate Galen Erso mm-hmm. instead of just getting him you know we need to get yeah. the information no you, you kill him if you get the chance and not just that yeah it's like too risky to film. have alive exactly yeah he's too risky to have alive but also like you know later in the film when he gives these little speech like his big character moment all of them have done things that are not necessarily virtuous but in the means justify the ends yeah essentially exactly. they're, they're all working towards this 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 important ideal but they do a lot of things that aren't necessarily good in themselves there's definitely a spirit that, although they might not be the most righteous, they are certainly better than the Empire. Like, they're not holier than thou, because that's something that 4, 5, and 6 sort of forces, is that, oh, the, uh, the Jedis are good. Everything the Jedi 
Jedi's do are good. So and the rebels and the Jedi's are like you know buddies. So the rebels must be like you know just as good and and everything. And it's like no, it's not really like that. And and that is always something that I've I I I've, I must say I've given it some thought before in the past, and I've always wondered. Is the rebellion really good? I mean, you know, they they're still a military. They're a functioning militia, actually, and and they have to resolve to guerrilla tactics because they don't have the numbers. So these are actually pretty brutal people. They've also tasted war and they've survived death strikes and whatever on their uh, on their homes and their villages and their towns and cities. I mean, these are people that these are essentially very angry refugees. So it was great to picture that, and by comparison. It was interesting to see that Krennic has a vision, you know, like his vision for the Empire, or at least the vision that the Empire uses within itself comes across in, we will have peace. You know, he's doing this all for peace. I don't know what it says about me, perhaps, but I wasn't rooting for either the Empire or the Rebels on this movie. I was rooting for Krennic. (laughs) He had my sympathies. Caught between the bureaucracy of the Empire and it's sort of tyrannical, like ordering him to do this and ordering him to do that and cover up his tracks and make rights with the with the higher ups, and then also trying mm. to crush this rebellion that's just fucking up everything. Like he was caught in the middle of this, and ultimately he just wanted peace and order. I mean, there's that wonderful, wonderful opening sequence, which obviously harkens back to Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, you know, an honest dialogue between two old friends, but you know that there is a serious threat in the air. Krennic came with his, you know, his death troopers. I mean, it's in the name, guys. If, if yeah. you could get a less uh, likely set of, or a more likely set of executioners, yeah, you're welcome to try. There's this menace in the air in that entire scene, but they're kind of yakking it up like as if, you know, it was in the, the the pub after a hard day's work and they're knocking back a few mm. pints like how's the wife oh she's dead <laughs> <laughs> why don't you come work with us again come on just just finish what you started mm, i'd really rather not oh come on <laughs> you kept your old office just like it was you even kept that sexy little secretary down the hall. Anyway, so I mean that that scene just <laughs> immediately had my had my my tensions. This was something new. This was something exciting. There was stronger characters, stronger acting performances. Oh, definitely. Uh, wow. Yes, and yes. and take it or leave it. You're not you're not having to commit yourself to these characters because guess what? They're all completely disposable. You don't have to watch Finn anymore he's dead it's that situation i mean unfortunately the cast of force awakens we're stuck with him if you didn't like kylo ren too bad (laughs) you're stuck with him he's gonna keep pulling off that mask and exposing his beautiful black locks and pouty angst riddled face so much yeah i didn't like captain andor well i don't care he's dead now it's actually cool that you say that. Felicity, what's her face? Didn't do anything for me either. I was like, yeah, you're a perfectly good placeholder. And I suppose once again, we have the, the protagonist with the daddy issues. Cool. Yep. But you can easily ignore her and just watch the wallpaper while she's giving moving speeches. And then, hey, they're X-Wings again. 
<laughs> the universe <laughs> is saved. The movie is saved. You've got at-ats sneaking up on you in tropical Thailand paradise. I mean, it's it's beautiful eye candy through and through. They had their sneaky boots on. Okay, so sure, you had at-ats able to sneak up on your protagonists, just sort of come through the mist like, hello, we're here too. <laughs> but you didn't see us coming, uh, or feel us for that matter. But another thing that struck me as interesting, the rebel fleet blasts out of hyperspace to kind of assist in this assault but they brought their transports along with them you know those big bulbous transport ships like what good are those in a fight honestly they the use them to, to no 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 the, the transports the rebel transports the ones they use to get personnel off of hoth oh yes yeah what they bring them into the middle of a space battle with star destroyers i mean the modern calamari cruiser i can buy the Corvettes, the Hammerhead craft, those are all, you know, I'm there like a bear. They, they belong in a space battle. But no, they decided to bring those flabby-looking rebel transports as well. I can only imagine they're like um, barrage balloons or basically <laughs> floating sandbags. <laughs> I mean, they're there to take shots. Maybe they didn't expect the shields to be up. I mean, they're, they're, they're bringing extra troops to land onto the surface, maybe. I don't know. Okay, I buy that. Sure, there's a good reason. Hey, I mean, that's going to earn it an extra half star from Steve. <laughs> Same thing <laughs> could be said of the Battle of Endor. I mean, the Rebels brought everything they had, or should I say, the effects department brought every single model that they had into that space battle just to kind of spice up the frame. But if you think of the practicalities, jumping your troop transports into a space battle is an unnecessary risk of personnel. Details, coming. <laughs> Sorry, right. I can't help myself. And another detail, and this is why it only got four stars for me, I couldn't overlook the fact that, and this is totally unfair, because I'm basically judging this movie against what my imagination told me happened before A New Hope. But I always imagined yeah. the Rebels to be a lot closer to the grassroots and not have a functioning cruiser fleet at that stage. I thought, mm, they've just gotten their hands on a handful of Y-Wings and X-Wings. They've got them loaded down in this base that is essentially ruins that existed previously. It's not like the, the Rebels had to build any kind of infrastructure. They just moved yeah. into a habitable planet that already had structures that they could hide hide their vehicles under. And that was it. Like, you don't have a fleet just hanging out behind Yavin, like, hidden somewhere, like... This is the sum total of what military equipment the rebels had amassed. You know, the calamari like, hadn't signed on to the the agreement just yet. They weren't they weren't part of the the rebel alliance. They weren't you know they they hadn't added their equipment and expertise. Just to cap that off, I guess Rogue One's failure for me, its largest failure, is. It really pulled the rug out from under my understanding of what the Rebel Alliance was at that point. And that was certainly not equipped with that much stuff. Red Squadron, Gold Squadron, Blue Squadron, Mon Calamari Cruisers, Frigates. It was all in the mix already. I mean, that's like, yeah, too much, too soon. That's more of a failure on your part of not like being a, a big enough Star Wars fan and watching like <laughs> something like Rebels. Or, or reading maybe some of the books, or even just watching the original movies. Because I mean, the, 
the rebellion has been going essentially since Palpatine took over. Yes, I mean, it's taken them decades to build up all of the stuff that they've had. I mean, and in Rebels, they're establishing there, really, that they're forming, you know, they have these things that they have, and they've been fighting this fight for quite a while. I mean, belogana has been involved, in, you know, since the start. Yeah. This is your fault, Stephen. Since 1977, you, you just haven't bothered to <laughs> be a bit of Star Wars fan. I'm lazy like that, man. <laughs> I kid, though. I kid, though. Because, I mean, your, your knowledge of Star Wars is more far-reaching than I think. I know mine is, but, I mean... It, it reaches to the outer rim. Yeah. Um, my Star Wars knowledge pales in comparison to a gentleman like Cujo, who hey! read the Bantam series of Expanded Universe books, only to now have all of that stuff null and void. Cujo, what was your feel on Rogue One? Give us a Star Wars tale. <laughs> I'm using the Star Wars franchise as a template to uncloak a different entity. Um, I'll stop there for a second. Did you guys feel any feminist propaganda in this film? For me, I didn't feel that. When I originally saw that Jin Erso was going to be the main character, I felt, okay, we're going to return back to form with Force Awakens having a female lead. And then, you know, we're going to have these sort of feminist tropes again of having sort of dumbed down male characters and a overly strong female lead, etc., uh, admittedly, when I'd seen the third trailer for this film, I was actually a little bit let down. I was I was actually very doubtful of uh, of how much I would enjoy Rogue One. But I actually found Jin Oso to have more weaknesses as a character in that movie than I felt What's-Her-Face has in Force Awakens, whose name I can't remember right now. Ray. Ray, yes. Okay. I just felt that like Ray is like super optimism and... And like happy and super, you know, sort of, yay, you know, girl next door. But she's also had to live with some hardships and stuff like that. And then we see Jin Oso and we're like, no, Ray has had some challenges, but Jin seems to be more tempered. And I feel that the characters around her all lend something to this film. Even if it's a minor thing, I felt that they were all rounded off nicely. And I felt that they all brought something to the table and they weren't necessarily put down, if you know what I mean. I didn't feel this like strong feminist feel from this film. It's not something that bugs me too much. I just hate it when it's an agenda and, and when it's not natural. And I felt that any kind of feminine strength in, the, in her as a character, I personally felt was quite natural. I'll, I'll probably yeah. step on some toes, brother, so you don't, you don't have to worry about that. What do you two gentlemen think? Did you feel that the male characters didn't really have a spine in this movie? Or, or what are you thinking? I'm going to not really have an opinion on the protagonists of this movie. I, I, I had sympathies with the antagonist. I felt the cartoon character was uh, unnecessarily dickish. Uh, and that wasn't true to his episode four appearance. Uh, and as for the Dirty Dozen or the, the Star Wars six... <laughs> Um, <laughs> nice. utterly forgettable, utterly disposable, and that is their purpose. They were like, let's just have this motley crew of different characters. Let's have two Asians, one, you know, swinging a big gun and the other guy a blind dude. Let's have a, a wacky, long-haired, uh, <laughs> Imperial X, X cargo jockey. Have a charismatic reprogrammed droid who somehow finds a sense of humor in the reprogramming. I mean, that was definitely a, a take on, um, Tars from Interstellar, and Han Solo, who happens to be a rebel sympathizer already. 
uh, when we meet him. I mean, th that's that's these guys, and that's that's what they are. Um, utterly disposable, but echoes of what we've already seen in Star Wars. Oh, and a girl with daddy issues, of course. Rob, did, were you feeling that at all? Well, I think overall, I mean, you, you, yeah, I mean, that's that one scene where, like, Andor is kind of really impressed with Jin's kind of abilities and taking out all of those stormtroopers, which he doesn't use again in the entire movie, you know, where she kind of takes out that stick. Which I was expecting near the end when she had those, those poles, you know, those kind of airplane or, I suppose, space jet guidance um, poles that she'd be able to use those at some point. That would have been freaking awesome. But, like, it was obviously just part of the disguise she was wearing. I think, as Stephen says, I mean, at least the, the, the rebel characters were essentially, they were just, they they simply don't have character. They're just certain um, archetypes that, that they've put into the film. Whereas Krennic was something new that we'd never seen before. Krennic was, wow, this is, this is Star Wars doing something new. An Imperial character that I have sympathy for. But then, at the same time, I mean, he's almost, you almost didn't need him because you have Tarkin in the film. I mean, if you, initially I thought, okay, you're not going to see much of him. You mean the dickish cartoon? Uh, yeah. No. yeah. <laughs> because essentially, you, you, you've essentially, I mean, I always assumed that Tarkin was the, was the main guy behind getting the Death Star designed. Maybe not designed, but I mean built. Um, and mm. they essentially inserted Krennic. I mean, I like his character, but they inserted him as, as like in between, you know, so like, oh, it was him who, who was always behind you know, getting the Death Star completed. If you can think of Tarkin as Kirk, who gets to sit in the chair, Krennic is yeah. uh, Spock. You know, he's science officer. I don't know, yeah. man. That's thin. Yeah. <laughs> he did. Well, I, I mean, the the, the 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 better analogy would probably be more like Riker and Picard, because Picard didn't often go on away missions, while Kirk yeah. often insisted on going on his own away missions. But I, I, li I like the analogy there. <laughs> uh, I like that one dimension they sort of added to Darth Vader. That uh, that you kind see, of surprised. Thing. I thought you, if if you had bigged up Darth Vader's role and Tarkin's role, you wouldn't you probably wouldn't even need a Krennic in the film. I kind of felt that with Krennic, I also sort of sympathized, and that's what I said earlier. I kind of at points I wasn't sure if I was rooting for Tarkin or Krennic. I mean, the back of my head knew that Tarkin was going to win this regardless. You know, like I knew that that was going to happen, but I kind of liked seeing. Krennic sort of, you know, try to manipulate and try to sort of, you know, get his way uh, with this whole situation. And that that made him in interesting. In fact, he's totally relatable. He's the human story of this movie. You couldn't make that Vader because Vader gets his arc much later in Jedi. That's when he becomes exactly. a human being again. And Tarkin, you know, he's the necessary sacrifice at the end of, of episode four. So I think there is validity for having a new baddie because you need someone whose arc concludes in this movie. That was Krennic. His ambition was his undoing, but he was just trying to do the, the right thing by the galaxy. In his own sort of, you know, like twisted like way. Another way to look at that as well is that Rogue One also tells a story from the perspective of the Empire, which is something we haven't actually gotten in the, in the Star Wars films. You know, we haven't really, really gotten that before. We've never really seen how the Empire works. We've just had snippets of how they work. And when, and whenever we have seen that, it's always been when they are at their worst, pushing a red button, you know, to fire off a Death Star laser or, you know, um, you know, shooting at Han and Chewie and Luke or 
uh, or, or meetings with Palpatine, uh, you know, Vader and Palpatine or Darth Vader, you know, force choking something. We're always seeing that side of the Empire, but we're not seeing, like you said, the human story there, which I felt that Rogue One was pretty good at uh, putting across, even though it didn't overdo it. But coming back to my point about Darth Vader, the one thing I really enjoyed about Darth Vader or what they did with Darth Vader is that it's kind of showing that Darth Vader is not just this giant black clad oaf that just walks around and and scares the shit out of everybody he's actually behind the scenes pulling strings you know he's actually manipulating things as well he's kind of playing with people's lives and you see that with his meetings with Krennic you know his whole like thing about don't choke on your ambition you know that I mean and and Krennic sort of smiling afterwards Darth Vader steps into Schwarzenegger territory there I mean come on that's a bad pun yeah, yeah, it is a bad pun. It was a laughably bad pun, but there's no good pun anyway. But, and I'm not trying to defend it. It's just, but the moment was cool. It was great to see. Oh, Darth Vader's actually a villain. He's he's not some force that walks around with red lightsaber and like. Rah, 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 rah. He's actually manipulative. He's actually causing shit, and well, that I- was cool to see. Because that's something that prior to this, we had only really seen in the Expanded Universe and in the video games, which are not canon anymore. But it was great to see that side of him on camera, and that was cool. You know, when they announced the prequels, I thought we'd be seeing a lot more Darth Vader doing cool shit. We had to wait all the way till 2016 to get that. I mean, was that corridor sequence not just a high point of the movie? Darth Vader doing cool shit. He always comes in after the stormtroopers have cleared the joints out. It happened on Leia's ship. It happened on Hoth. It happened in Jedi as well. Vader arrives after they've apprehended Luke. It's like, oh, okay. Cool. I guess I'll just take him up with my shuttle. <laughs> well, let, yeah. let me ask this. Did you guys midnight it or, or how did you take it in? Were you Was there a sense of urgency when it came out? No. Yes. Okay. I I watched it as you guys might know. I watched the first screening on Friday morning of its release date here. So that's not the preview screening which happened on at midnight on Thursday, to which a lot of my friends in the press went to. I watched the first show in the morning and I thankfully got to watch it by myself, and it was hugely satisfying. Has anybody caught it more than three times? I'm gonna answer again. I've seen it no? twice. Okay. I actually am scared of watching it a second time, uh, Kujo, because I enjoyed it so much on my initial viewing that Uh I'm actually worried that watching it again is going to somehow tarnish that, which is a stark uh, contrast to Force Awakens, which I had to watch again because I was was very indifferent when I walked out of it the first time. But that was not marred so much by the film, but more by this excitement of a new Star Wars film, um, and well, should I say the force choke of a new Star Wars film and the fact that I watched it in a crappy cinema where the 3D was like a little bit off kilter and it was irritating me and it gave me a headache and the sound was shit. So I didn't even get to enjoy a lot of that film. So I only enjoyed it the second time. That's Force Awakens. What's your story, Cooch? I, I've caught it three times. The first time I went with mixed company, um, so I was slightly distracted, but I did catch something in the first viewing that blew my hair around a little bit and I'll get to, I'll get into that in in just a second. But I will say that 
I thought the pacing up front was great. It, it was very sinister. Colors were dark, maybe too dark, but beautiful set pieces. I don't think the writing was strong. Um, I love some of the characters. I love some of the moments, which which is consistent with what Disney's been up to uh, in the first flick. When you say you didn't like the writing, are you referring perhaps specifically to two very blatant monologues given by our our leading man and leading lady? Uh, who was our leading man? That robot? No, Urso. Oh, <laughs> uh, and what's his name? Fuck. What's his name? Um, Captain... Andor Calrissian. Okay, okay. Captain Andor. <laughs> I found I found the men to be very, uh, for lack of a better word, pathetic in most cases. There was some nobility in, in a couple of the characters, and I did enjoy them. I do know people are flawed. I get that. I, th I thought once again we saw a female character that has a great story. The father arc works for me, and it probably works for whomever has felt similar loss. But the, the only problem I have with it, and again, it'll, it'll become a little more apparent as soon as I just kind of ease into it, but um, it was a good flick. The end, dude, the Hammerhead Corvette, is that instantly one of the coolest maneuvers? Mm -hmm. You're just in awe of that whole thing going down. Apparently the that Hammerhead is from the Rebels TV show. I thought it was a suicide move, but then I was like, no ways. This is working. He's like, and stop like engines and you're like, yes! It's yes, working against the Star Destroyer? <laughs> oh, man. I did enjoy the, the cameo by uh, Walrus Man. That that was nice. I mean, I know it's a little tight, but what are you going <laughs> to do? Dr. Evazon. They would have beat the Kessel Run in the speed in which they, they traveled from one side of the outer rim to the other. <laughs> oh, yeah, those guys are movers. Gotta love it. <laughs> maybe, um, they, maybe they caught a ride with, with Han. <laughs> Ponda Baba. We got our first Star Wars conspiracy theorist in uh, Saw Guerrero, and and I gotta say he's one of my favorite characters from the Star Wars franchise. Uh, just uh, Whitaker, it's Whitaker, right? Uh, Ghost Dog. Yeah. Uh, his delivery yeah, is fucking great. It's got me wanting to see the Clones TV series from whence he came. At least the character because yeah. came from there. Oh, yeah. I I can't see it being that dynamic, but. I thought the robot was okay. I thought it was a little heavy-handed. But late in the movie, and maybe you guys remember this, they're they're checking out optimal routes to uh, the, the best way to get to somewhere on the space station. They say there's 98 troopers between here and where we need to get, and there's a certain percent chance that we'll, you know, we're going to make it. Uh, do you remember what that percentage was, gentlemen? 33. I actually don't. It was 33, guys. Ooh. Um, yeah. Hold on, hold on. Let me let me get into this. Uh, 33 is a signature, and I know Paul just turned 33, and I kind of ducked that conversation because it's just a heavy one for me because that's taking the elevator straight to the top, gentlemen. That's why people think we live in a simulation because the number 33 is a signature by whomever designs our society. And I'll, I'll walk us through it a little bit. I'm not going to get too deep. You're saying there, we live in Logan's run. I'm saying that our world's not what we think it is, but that's a conversation for another uh, another forum, I imagine. 33 years, Christ was on the earth. Uh, King David ruled for 33 years. Uh, there's 33 parallels, I believe, or there's 33 sections of the earth, if you flatten the map out. Um the the UFO 
Roswell landing, 33rd parallel. The CNN news headquarters, 33rd parallel. The CNN logo is a 33, if you turn it sideways. G.I. Uh, Joe, three, three and three quarter inches, they're 33. You know what? I, I stumbled upon that last night because I was like, can I tie 33 to G.I. Joe? And I was like, well, there's no, you know, there's no vehicles with it on it. And that's exactly right, Paul. And dude, you, you snaked me on that one because that blew my mind. Because 33, you guys are on the metric, so you're thinking three and seven, five. But we're on the Imperial, dude. That's on page, that's three and three quarter. No, Kujo, whether you write it three and three quarter or three and seven, five, it's still dealing with uh, inches. Fair enough. You're you're absolutely right. Inches ain't metric. M- more 33 madness. This is uh, like when I say madness, just you know, I mean like as a collective term. No, it's not madness, dude. That's what I'm saying. Like consciousness grows up just like people do. Our society is now recognizing all these trends, dude. That's, That's very actually very interesting, interesting Kujo. Let me drop a couple more from our society. Bank of America. Uh, if you're stateside. Oh, and I know Cabal is loving this. Uh, Happy New Year's, brother. Because this is all biblical, dude. And it doesn't just resign itself to our society. Oh, I got a jet coming overhead, but fuck it. Yeah, no, it's it's in other societies as well. Like whomever, oh, by the way, the Twin Towers brought down after 33 years. It goes on and on. You may not believe in the supernatural. As a person, I'm not religious. I'm just not because religion is a clown show. And God's not that bad with money, so he doesn't need it all the time. Dave Cabal, but, you might not like that one. No, Cabal, Cabal's a righteous dude. I've talked to that guy. He's down the coast. I love that, man. But no, it's it's just, it's there. It's there. And it's, I don't know, uh, Bank of America, 311s. That's their design. Um, hmm. It's there. Order 66. Guess what that unleashed? Two Sith, 33. Um so the conclusion to this point is that the architect of our society is leaving his signature for all to see as many times as he, she, or it can possibly do. Well, there's there's a certain group of people in our society, and, and people call them different names, and they laugh when they do, because it probably makes them nervous. But uh, no, I mean, the ruling class in our society, uh, the people that designed basically everything that happens, there's no randomness at the top but i I do think gi joe as much as star wars not not in lucas's hands because lucas was on the side of the rebellion when he started star wars Hmm. but like righteousness and you guys were talking about it earlier the rebellion never ends because it's an arc like at the beginning you're fighting to get to the top and when you get to the top you're scared you're going to lose everything so you build a death star when i saw that in the star wars movie it was clearer to me what Disney is. Oh, and by the way, Walt Disney is a 33rd degree Freemason. Uh, there's 33 degrees of Freemasonry. And Club 33 exists at Disneyland, a private club, which you're not allowed to go into. I mean, you can go into if you reserve like a year ahead of time. But it's just there. And I'll, I'll stop. I'll put myself out of, you know, I've been on fire for a minute. So I was wondering how I was going to link this point. And I think maybe you've just done it for me, Kujo. We visit a planet called Jeddah, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's where they tested the Death Star first time. Not to be confused with the city of Jeddah in Saudi Arabia, but phonetically at least, if not 
in terms of actual spelling, they sound exactly the same. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so we're already contextualizing and conjuring up images of the Middle East. We then see that it is, in fact, a desert planet with an ancient city, people walking around with head wraps, burkas, looking very Middle Eastern, in fact. Yep. And you've got the empire basically pillaging the natural resource of kyber crystals to power their gigantic war machine. The parallels are far too obvious to be blinded to. I mean, I'm seeing an analogy of the Western world after the Middle East's oil reserves so they can power their enormous war machine. Yep. In that essence, is Disney not saying that the Rebel Alliance are the Arabs? Islamic State? IS? That's the Rebel Alliance. The Empire is the United States. Yeah, no. Well, that's surprise. That's not a surprise. Well, that, that's what no, I was going to say. It's not necessarily well. that correct, yeah, connecting the rebellion to it, but at least that area. To... Well, okay, Saul Guerrero's extremists. Yeah, he's extremists. They're an extreme version of the rebels. They decided to go with an IS aesthetic. They live in caves. They do sneak attacks with RPGs in sort of Middle Eastern looking cities. The ancient world, so to speak. As I said, the parallels are undeniable. They even went as far as to call it Jeddah. <laughs> I just, by coincidence, have a friend from uh, Twitter that's from Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. So I hit her up and I was like, I was like, are you aware in the new Star Wars movie that, that you're basically one of your cities is getting blown up? And she's like, oh, really? And I was like, yeah, the Empire pillaged it. I'm like, sound familiar? And we just had a good laugh. But yeah, it, it seems pretty close to the mark. I didn't immediately think that. I went, oh, okay, maybe this is the Jedi homeworld or, you know, like the Jedi, you know, like graveyard or whatever. Uh, at first, that was kind of what I was thinking. And then when I saw the aesthetic, I thought, mm, okay, yeah. Like I, I, I also had similar thoughts to what Stephen was thinking. And I try not to analyze the film too much when I'm watching it, but sometimes some things are like, they just slap you in the face. But I actually felt that that was done to also sort of say like, listen, rebellions can be good and they can be bad. Uh, here's here's a closer on the number 33. Since it came up in Star Wars and, and we, we have an affinity for three and three quarter inch figures. Many people believe the number originates from the Bible. John 3, 3, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This isn't the form to speculate what those words mean, but essentially if you go by Aleister Crowley's philosophy, which (laughs) I would argue is what our, our nation is operating under, that everything is backwards. Dangerous name to throw around, sorry. I I just chew on one thing at a time. And and Crowley came up this year in entertainment for HBO. So I know that he's operating in the background. Not him per se, but again, I'm not religious. That's not what Joe Berg's about. I'm not trying to tell you how to live. It's just, it's it's undeniable. Moving away from from the deeper aspects of this film, I thought it was a really beautiful looking film. Um, Yes. Like in general, like, like the cinematography was very good. The guy who did the cinematography was a guy named Greg Fraser, who's um, previously worked on another film, which I thought was pretty good looking. It's called Let Me In, which is a remake of the, well, the Swedish Fuck film yes. Let the Right One In. I'd seen the Swedish film originally, and it's a very rough film. You can see yeah. it's, it's a foreign film. 
Um, and I was like, when when I heard that they were doing a remake of that movie, I was like, ah, they can't, they can't top the original. And even though I don't think the American remake of that film tops the original, it's, it's a gorgeous looking movie. It's a very good looking movie. About that car roll scene, right? Yes, it's uh, it's brilliant. And he's also, I mean, well, Snow White and the Huntsman. He also did the cinematography for that one. <laughs> and even though it's a terrible movie. It it's a good-looking good. movie. Yeah, no, definitely. You can't deny um, it. It's a good-looking film. So. And um, also, on top of, um, I think I mentioned fan service before, um, there's also lots of, like, just little, like, Easter eggs in the film, um, mm. especially for, for, like, eagle-eyed um, Rebels fans. Um, they put a lot of, like, Rebels-related um, stuff in there. So at least two points in the film, you see the ghost, which is the main craft from that. Chopper's in it as well. You hear him, and you see him. Mm-hmm. Um, which which is pretty cool, and some other trivia. While I'm on a on a trivia bent right now, <laughs> director of episode eight, Ryan Johnson, plays a Death Star technician mm-hmm. in, in the movie, um, and also Warwick Davis. No ways. Is back in the film. You were that cool yeah, little creature. He, yeah, Wonderful. he played. Character's name is Witif Siubi, um, one of Saw's um, mercenaries, the the tiny little dude, and I thought that was really cool. And he was um, a cool little dude. Yeah, he was awesome in action, eh? Uh, I dug him. Yeah, so, I mean, that, that's a little bit of trivia, you know, kind of taking us down from the, the deepest levels of, of thinking back right up to the uh, the surface level. <laughs> round the table, uh, or round the mic, as Steve likes to say, quickly, and it doesn't have to be, like, a top five or anything, but, like, maybe two or three things that you really liked in the movie and you really disliked, just quickly. I got you. I like the hammerhead. I like that whole space battle. That's as good a dog fights as I've seen. I love the moment where the, that Adat takes a shot to the side of the head from that rocket launcher and then self-corrects mm-hmm. and then gets blown down by that X-Wing. That's just, if you've been on a sports field and somebody picks you up or something, uh, that's that moment where that guy's like, hell yeah, you know? So yeah. That's a great moment. Sorry, come on, Kucho. I've got to agree with you there, man, because the whole time you're thinking – Okay, so what's this enormous rocket launch going to do to the AT-AT? Surely it's going to do some damage? No, it did shit all. And then, oh, the 11th hour rescue by an X-Wing. Beautiful, beautiful. Did, did anybody have any uh, thoughts about It Man in Star Wars? Like, did I you like him. It? Okay. It was awesome. You guys have mentioned that the characters were kind of forgettable. I actually loved those two guys. Uh, those guys it, did. I didn't. I like I'm the sorry. characters. Who are we talking about? Because <laughs> I completely forgot uh, about them. We're talking about the blind, uh, guy. the blind guy and the other guy. So that would be Turek Umwe, who's the, the blind character. Nice, Robert. And, and Blaze. <laughs> Baze Malbus. Oh, right. Played by Donnie Yen and Jiang Wen. Well, I said this to you in the theater, didn't I, Yen Rob? I was Wen. like, isn't this a throwback to um, Hidden Fortress? Yeah, in a lot of ways, yes. Kurosawa, the sort of protagonists or the lens through which we watch the film are these two, like, goofs. Misfits. These these two misfits, these two idiots. And, like, you know, you had quite a lot of banter between these two. They were old friends. Baze is always going on about how, you know, you're not really lucky or skilled. I'm just covering your ass all the time. (laughs) Which, Mm. to some degree, is true. And to some degree, isn't true. I mean, you can make a your own mind but you know the, the banter was good the, the running gags were good 
still, they're instantly forgettable because they are such outliers for me. Which is a weird thing to say because they're unique, but they're also so unique, they kind of aren't really Star Wars-y. Yeah. And by being that, they're probably even truer Star Wars characters than the, you know, the the often rehashed template of the rogue, the farm mm. boy, the princess. You know, those character types, you know, Leia is Padme is, you know, any other number of characters. Same thing with Han, same thing with, with Luke. So these guys were new templates, but it just becomes like any other kind of buddy action movie in that sense. You know, another Dirty Dozen, or as I call the Star Wars 6. Some people like movies where everybody dies. The thing, baby. I do. Yeah. I really got angry uh, midway through the second act. Although I will say that I loved uh, being in the Rebel base again. All those set pieces were awesome. The lighting was killer. Uh, <sighs> the hairstyles. Dude, the fucking mm-hmm. hairstyles. The, I mean, oh. the 70s survives in Rogue One. The moustaches, mm-hmm. the like, you know, the thinning hairlines. I was like, yeah, this is so cool. I really hated how soft-spoken the men were. I, I've I've been in war rooms. People don't swallow their tongue. I mean, you're gonna get you're gonna get people's words. And I just thought it was real weird that Disney decided to shut everybody up and just let a girl who had no real weight aside from the information she had. I'm I'm thrilled about female characters, and I'll watch movies with with them all day. They had to nail the 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 feminist movie checklist, where you've they got did. to have female characters, multiple female characters, having conversation. About something other than a man. <laughs> yeah. You gotta hit those those three marks. I, I will say the the ending where the blast eclipses both of them uh, on the beach. I don't know of a better ending in the Star Wars world to be honest. I loved it. I, mm. I loved that kind of thing. You said um, you like the space battles. Well, yeah. Part of my favorite things of, of it with the opening. The opening was was brilliant. Um, it just it sets I think the tone of the film and the entire opening sequence, as Steven said. Whole Glorious Bastards thing is is really good. Darth Vader, obviously, I mean, his scene where he, he chops everyone up, I mean, Word. awesome. And for me, also, <laughs> probably the most emotional scene for me at least was when Jin gets to see the hollow projection, the the message from her father, Galen. Like I really felt for her in that scene. You know, where he, I mean, yes, he's explaining, you know, the, the the fatal weakness that he's incorporated into the Death Star. But also felt, I mean, he was still talking to her, mm. and her reaction to it was, was, it felt very real for me. Those are me, That's, my my top. The sequence things. was so strong, dude. Yeah, I wish it would gone, we could have gone for longer, but like obviously, you know, the Empire was on a was on a timetable. <laughs> the weakest parts, or, or like one of the things I didn't like. The one thing I, I felt that didn't have to do was um, Jin saving that little girl. It felt really unnecessary, and it kind of fell into the whole thing of like. Children, for whatever reason, always freeze in in situations like this. They completely in movies. Like yes, in movies, it's like you'd think, you know, you you just stop, drop, and roll, or whatever. You know, just get down on the ground. But they just stand there screaming for whatever reason, and they've always somehow run away from their parents. And the, mm. like that moment just completely took me out because I was like, holy shit, again. Well, Rob, if it's any consolation, buddy, uh, I think it's doubtful she managed to escape Jeddah in time. So she's gone. It was kind of like a wasted moment then, because, 
yes, we didn't know what's coming, and neither did she or the kid or the mother. But um, it was just like, what a ugh, stupid. Another thing I, well, it's not really a, a, a something that I don't like, but it's something that I wish I could have seen um, because I love the this, this finished version of the film. But um, it's been pointed out to me. I think I watched a couple of videos. The changes that appear to have been made between the time that they they released the trailers and the film itself. Mm. Because there's a lot of sequences in the trailers that are completely out of the film and also suggest that there, there have been major changes to the, to the end of the film. Because there's, there's shots and sequences in the trailer where you see Jin running on the beach with ostensibly the hard drive of the information. Yeah. While in the film itself, they never ever leave that building once they acquire you know, the thing and they mm. have to get to the top of the building. And I wish I knew what that movie was like. <laughs> mm, and that shot um, of a, a TIE fighter kind of rising up to meet her. Yes, rising up. Mm. That's what, it's still in the movie. That shot oh. was in the movie, but obviously they CG'd out the CG <laughs> TIE fighter. fighter. Well, they just, it's like, they what, what would have happened there, you know? I'm just so curious to know. Yeah, note a um, TIE fighter, not a TIE striker. Paul, I don't like that yes. design simply because it's to sell toys. It's so blatant. It's like, <laughs> what is wrong with TIE Fighters? Why do we have this other thing? Yeah, but you have the TIE Fighter as well, and then you have that other... Um, there's another TIE, I can never remember its name, but it's also got a very sharp look like that. Uh, not the Interceptor, but it's it's similar. It's like a... I just like that aesthetic. The TIE Defender. It's also the weird thing is, if you think about it, um, it felt like... If, yeah. yeah. You know, with, with Steven's logic, when you watch A New Hope, it's like... Those are the TIE Fighters. These are the only type of TIE Fighters that they have. And yeah. Darth Vader's one is, is a prototype of a new type of TIE Fighter that they, they've developed and they're you know, slowly integrating. Mm-hmm. I guess later on you can believe that there were always TIE Bombers. Because obviously mm-hmm. that's a certain type of TIE Fighter that you're not going to use necessarily in patrols and stuff. But with introducing these different types before the original movie, it does feel yeah like product selling. Sort of shoehorned into product placement. I'm going to jump in with my highs and lows right quick because the first one echoes Rob. My high point was the scene with the hollow image of Galen Erso. The emotional hype is is palpable. That's great. But more importantly than that, the plot point that goes as far as to enhance A New Hope in, in, in terms of its logic the fact that the weakness of the Death Star was an inside job makes a a rather flaky bit of logic, leap of faith even, that Episode 4 would have us make, makes that leap of faith like a steel-reinforced suspension bridge of faith. Mm-hmm. It's like this was intentional. That specific exhaust port was designed to set up a chain reaction. It's not just mm-hmm. a willy-nilly like, Oh, shoot here and the entire thing will blow up like a miracle. No, it was deeply intentional, a deeply seated secret, and something that kept Galen Erso's hopes alive, even as he was working under servitude, but keeping up a brave face. I mean, his story is, is a very interesting human story, and if Star Wars ever gets to the point of, like, actually making art movies... <laughs> I imagine Mads, Mads Mikkelsen's character's story arc would be a very interesting one of working on this horrific death machine, 
but all the while nurturing this little spark of, of hope that he could get this secret out to the rebellion in time. We get like the Schindler's List of Star Wars. Exactly. That's <laughs> Schindler's List. Wonderful. Working for the Nazis, but saving the Jews. How about that moment where that shuttle turns its ass on a gin or whatever and almost blows her off the platform right on the uh, connection with her father? That was that was a pretty dope moment. Yeah. Would that be your top of the pile, Cujo? Oh, no. I, I just wanted to inter interject. My weak source moments... Uh, we have two monologues from our leading male and female, Jin and Cassian, almost in quick succession. She gives a stirring speech to all the uh, Rebel Alliance representatives, and he gives a speech about why he is in the rebellion and what he believes in. And that kind of character exposition doesn't really belong in Star Wars, where it's all about pacing your your understanding of characters is more it's less overt yeah it's show don't tell absolutely yeah and and in those two instances we have a classic case of like too much talking you have a one shot of a single character in mid shot monologuing into camera and that is so un star wars and so redundant you you don't need to speak your subtext just go out and do the fucking mission <laughs> Mm. that's it for me I don't think Disney is that subtle I think that's what we're finding out but yeah Our market, the market is not that subtle stay true to the source material no character snaps off more than I don't know four lines of dialogue before someone else has something to say or something blows up <laughs> yeah well the way they speak in Star Wars is often very deliberate it's not um, it's not always so off key that's where the, the humor works because the humor tends to be organic in Star Wars it just comes out of nowhere and um, and arguments between Leia and Han for example they explode but they are tonally very different from a lot of the other sort of discussions or talking or instances where somebody's opening their mouth to say something in Star Wars highs and lows Paul my first like big plus point uh the film was for me at least was a very emotionally high film like i actually uh cringed every time a pilot in an x-wing died <laughs> um like cringed in the sense that like i actually felt so shit for them like um the in the sheer intensity of the battles and the action and the momentum of the film had me um on a very cool emotional po uh, place in the sense that I felt things. I really felt that film. I felt when something exploded, like when somebody, when a character just, a no-name character just died. And for example, like from an explosion or getting taken out or, you know, the punches, the kicks, the that kind of stuff. I really felt the action, which I enjoyed, which was something that was a little bit, it was very Star Wars and a little bit un-Star Wars in some places, but I really enjoyed that. As mentioned before, I uh, also like the looking glass into the Empire, sort of seeing the Empire from the inside out as opposed to from the outside in, and seeing how they operate and seeing that they also have their hopes and dreams, so to speak. They also have their propaganda. It definitely lends an edge to everything. I enjoyed the characters, actually, all of them. Uh, I really felt shit when they all died, but kind of it's not the same kind of shit like oh my god like oh, he died it's like it was just like uh, i felt bad when he died like i was like oh i got to know you and i liked you you i didn't get to, to know but like you went off on a high note so like you know go you you know and um i especially loved 
the return of the force. Uh, what I mean by that is that the force once again felt like a mystical energy, which is something that I felt uh, Force Awakens also did very well. And I'm glad to see that they're maintaining that feeling. It was a mystical energy again. Did it manifest itself in this film? Only once, really, once or twice, and it's with Chirrut Imwe, when he's walking and he's sort of doing that walk of face towards the, the button to go and like turn the key or whatever. I enjoyed that leap of faith moment in the film. Uh, once again, I felt that that really pushed the angle of the Force. It was like the Force is an entity in this universe, in this faraway galaxy. The Force is something that is, you know, there, and it, it wills certain things, and you can feel that that it was behind that. It was like the Deus Ex Machina, so to speak. And I enjoyed that. I really loved that. And the ending. Well, dude, Kill everybody. When he's doing the, the Force is with me, I am one with the Force. At first, yeah. as a viewer, you're kind of annoyed. By the yes. end, when that other guy picks it up, you're like, that's right. It is very cool. I hate that it's sort of, I mean, it was very well designed because it was designed to be something that viewers would take away from the film and then use in memes and shit like that at nauseum, which they are doing, which I find fucking irritating. But it is a bit of a martial arts concept that I really appreciated. Once again, the force is very much, is very similar to martial arts concepts and Asian philosophy. So it was great to see a little bit of a return to that. And then, yeah, the ending, dude. I love that everybody died. For me, it was like, wow, that was really cool. Like, I knew everybody was going to die, and I would have been really upset if they all miraculously lived, or if, like, you know, if those two at the end miraculously survived. When they died, it was like, this guy's dead. He's dead. He's not getting up. No, he's he's dead. Like, it was, it was actually, it was like a bit of a pull to swallow. I was like, okay. I know for Steven, they were throwaway for me, I got attached to some of them, so I felt when they died, I was a bit like surprised. I was like, okay, and they die on screen, you know, which was also very interesting. Those are my high points. Low points, I'm sorry, but I can't stand CG layer. Uh uh. <laughs> Don't like CG layer. One of the major things that's just a big smudge on the film for me. Uh, CG Tolkien actually didn't bug me, but CG layer, she stood out bad. Like, I was like, oh my god. Mm, I, I'm actually the, the reverse of that, to be honest. CG talking bugged me, CG layer, I was like, mm, I've bought it by now, and it's just one line, one word, in fact. <laughs> I was like, ooh, here we go, here we go. <laughs> We're linking right back to four. Nice. I don't mind its purpose, I just mind its execution. And I shouldn't be like that, but in a film that has, up until that point, impressed me for the most part with its visual effects to the point where I was giving a shit about X-Wings blowing up. I wasn't thinking, oh my God, the explosion on that CG is amazing. I was like, fuck that poor guy, <laughs> you know, like Jesus, like these people are dying, <laughs> you know, the heroic moments, sorry on the emotional. I love that shit, man. It gives me goosebumps. I get like tears, tears well up in my eyes when I see shit like that. Anyway, and another you... low point, the yeah. score. I felt that the score was weak and I can't decide if it's intentional or if it's if it's a deliberate thing. I get that it can't be the Star Wars fanfare. I get that, and I don't want it to be. It feels like it wants to be. And I suppose in the language of film, when that Star Wars fanfare comes into the end of the uh, of New Hope, it kind of symbolizes that the rebe the rebellion is now complete. It is kind of it is now 
full, taken a full form. It is now about to take its biggest step. It is now a full entity. So, like I said, I can't decide if the score is just deliberate because it feels like it goes to a point and it just sort of whittles off. It doesn't seem to build on itself. It's a trek out on you, brother. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Uh, anyway, and then one of the things that I had seen in the trailer that actually made me very worried about watching this film was when she says, we rebel. And I was like, oh my fuck. Like, oh Jesus. I'm like, that's a moment when I watch this film, I'm just going to have to just trip over and, and, and ignore. And it wasn't in the film. And I was so thankful for that. That moment with the CG Princess Leia, that's the one moment in the whole thing that makes it this of a prequel. The first time you see that properly is when Luke meets her. Essentially, yes. I mean, you see it early in the film. Obviously, you, you know there are the you know the whole destruction of Alderaan, but like that's that's the first proper moment where you're like, oh, this is this is Leia. Yes, you do see her earlier, you know, talking with Darth Vader and Tarkin and, and all of that. But like in that moment in Rogue One, it's like, oh, you're supposed to recognize her as Leia, because initially in 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 A New Hope, you don't get to see her face, you know, especially on the mm. ship when she's handing the plans off to R2-D2 and all that. First time mm. you see her is when, you know, she's dragged in front of Darth Vader. And I felt that, yeah, that made it less of a prequel than the, yeah, than it should be. They should have just gone over the shoulder. Yes, this is hope, you know, and then then you left wondering, who is this person? I mean, you know, yeah, somehow she, she's history... connected to Bail Organa because he's yeah. like, oh, I'm going to trust her with my life. Life. Yeah, I thought like so, yeah, I, I uh, so as well. It's kind of like, oh yes, there's you know, there's Leia. Oh, we got to see her. You know, it's like it's more fan service. If you just left that little bit of fan service out, it would have made it a stronger ending. Now that the character of Carrie Fisher ha has reached its conclusion, and she was a huge character in pop culture, do you do you guys have any you know final thoughts about her? Uh, did she mean anything to you guys growing up? Did you have a crush? What about it? You know, we we all growing up, we we have sort of an archetype. Well, we we all sort of attach ourselves to something that we find attractive, and that sort of is what we build our attraction on. You know, like sexual attraction, etc. I've always found Carrie Fisher, her face and her voice to be exceptionally sexy. And and actually, to be fair, not Carrie Fisher, Leia. And I've always loved her character. And for me, growing up, you know, I've always had, I've had a mom who's always been like, be a gentleman. I mean, I know all of her moms are like, you know, you should be a gentleman and stuff like that. But I mean... My mom was very like big on, you know, like how you treat women, you know, you treat women right. And this is why I get walked over by women, by the way, because I just can't be an asshole to chicks. Um, yeah, I know. Right. But yeah, Carrie Fisher was a strong woman and Leia is a strong character. And she helped define a lot of like how 
the characters I kind of like to think up and draw and, and sort of conceive in terms of stories and things like that. So, you know, for that, I'm very thankful for. I mean, I can't remember seeing Carrie Fisher in any other form other than than the Star Wars series. Yes, I know she has that, um, like a cameo in Jane, Son and Bob Strikes Back, but she has a long list of credits, most of which I haven't watched. But now I'm finding finding that she actually did a lot of writing for a lot of stuff that I've actually enjoyed. You know, that was really cool. But it's weird. Like, when I heard that she died, I was like, shit, that's really shit. It's like, it's a shit one. But at the same time, this woman's left behind so much that I don't really feel like she is dead. Like, I just feel like, okay, cool, she's moved on, but she's left so much behind that is just awesome, you know? It's the same way I feel about Bowie dying. It's like, I love David Bowie. Like, I love his music. But I don't mourn the loss because he left so much behind. And... I, I just feel that, you know, Carrie Fisher is somebody who left the world a better place than it was when she got here in the sense of what she left behind. Before there was a Scarlet's or a Baroness in my... No, sure. In my role play, in my playtime, there was Princess Leia. She was, like, the quintessential female action hero. I never played as her. That was always left to my buddy's sister. <laughs> but... She was the take-no-nonsense, lethal-as-hell. Did you know, statistically, she has a better hit ratio than Han and Luke with a blaster in Star Wars? Mm. That's True awesome. story. Anyway, so she's lethal-as-hell, has a brain and a mouth to match. Princess Leia was indomitable as a character, and while I'm fully aware that Carrie Fisher was off to a shaky start in Episode 7, I am really, really looking forward to hopefully seeing her find her, her groove in her posthumous final credits in Episode 8. That is a reason to see that movie as many times as possible. I hope she has a, a fundamental role to play in 8. I hope she's not just fan service, have her in a few scenes... And even if she is relegated to being a cameo type, I'm hoping for the best. I'm expecting the best. I'm expecting to see that indomitable spirit again, which, well, the world is a poorer place now that it's been subtracted from it. I didn't crush on her. I don't know what the hell happened. I missed that wave. No, I missed that as well. I think as much as anyone else, I, I, I think I knew Carrie mostly from being Princess Leia. And Princess Leia was gorgeous and beautiful and strong but i think carrie fisher herself was a strong person witty funny crazy i've read many of her tweets um and seen many interviews and she was just a insane person <laughs> you know like in a, in a really good way and that, that that's really beautiful and i think the most incredible thing i, I mean to take away from this uh, what an amazing person she was is that her mother passed away the day after debbie mm. reynolds and that's that's incredible to me that like she was such a powerful influence and person that I mean her mother just couldn't go on without her. And mm. that is amazing and so sad. They checked out together. Yes. I love that she wasn't a diva as well. She seemed so down to earth. Self deprecating even. I think she was yeah. very like larger than life. Don't misunderstand me. Like I think she was a very like a big person. Like when she came into a room, I think she she was quite a big person, you know, like she had like a, a huge personality and she's probably one of the loudest laughers in the room and whatever. 
I mean, obviously, this is just conjecture. It's like, but that's the feeling I got from her. But I've never, ever gotten the impression from her that she's a diva, that she thinks everybody should fucking bow down to her, that she thinks that she's anything special. Um, like, even when I've seen her in interviews and stuff, uh, I think it was uh, in SDCC in the one panel, and, and the way she sort of walks around, it's like, it's not diva-ish, but at the same time, it, it's kind of like, you know what, this is my house, everybody, like, you know, like, and that was, that's kind of cool, it's like a, it's an interesting quirk to her. Carrie Fisher had that thing that I most admire in a, a celebrity, and that's, they don't want the celebrity. They don't want yeah. the spotlight. They never asked for it. It was thrust upon them, and they, they certainly shone bloody hard. But my yeah. favorite kinds of of celebrities, be they film stars like Carrie Fisher or musicians like Tom York, is that they shy away from the, the spotlight. They want to make their work because their work is brilliant. But when yeah. it comes to the the kind of attention that they get as a result from it, they wish they could just divorce themselves from that. They wish they could separate mm. these things out. They don't like to live a public life or be under the spotlights or not have their discretion anymore. And that's something that I really connect with, I relate to. I, I, I like to do what I do, but I don't like any kind of fame or infamy or recognition from it. I just I just want to do my thing, man. And that was mm, that was Carrie Fisher. Yeah. Well, that was my, my, my understanding of, of what she was like. And... That's certainly a guiding light to me in, in my professional work. Well, dude, someday they're going to make a movie about the, those three, Hamill, Fisher, and uh, Ford. And you know it's going to win Oscars because those guys have lived lives that are unexplainable to people like us. And it, so, I mean, uh, Fisher, yeah. I don't know, buddy. What's the Long Beach scene like? Surely it's <laughs> pretty racy. You told me Californication was a good reference point. Well, I, I didn't know we were jumping that level in the 11th hour. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, dude, it's... No, brother, it's 1 a.m. in Africa. <laughs> we're past the 11th hour. Well, I live in the land of mind control. Oh. I mean, people chase things that are not tangible all the time. Fame is an illusion, man. I mean, it's always going to be about the people that care. It's always going to be about family. Uh, hopefully, you have success along the way. I mean, the more you get wrapped up in your ego, the less you see. But Fisher was a one of a kind. She didn't blink. She wasn't afraid of celebrity. I mean, yeah, watch some of those roasts where she puts Lucas between the crosshairs. I mean, good Lord, that guy was squirming. Same with Harrison, especially now that we know what she knows or what she uh, shared with him. Mm. Uh, yeah, dude, this is a this has been a uh, robust G.I. Joburg. <laughs> Indeed. Good notes to close it on then. Rest in peace, Carrie Fisher. Yeah. Next time, episode 80. It's going to be back to G.I. Joe, I assure you. We hope you enjoyed uh, our little sojourn a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. This is Steve. Cujo. Paul, hopefully not exploding at the end of the movie. <laughs> Robert. Wishing you a very, very hopeful and prosperous <laughs> 2017. It's good to have Michigan in the house. <laughs> nice.